you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. We'll actually be backing up a little into Genesis 27, but we'll focus on chapter 28. This is a sermon I was supposed to preach several weeks ago, but uh, had that bit of bout of dizziness and wasn't able to do so. We return to our study in the life of Abraham, but Abraham has now died, and it is his son Isaac who continues the line, and his son Jacob. Um, the last time we were looking at this story, we looked at the incident in which Jacob, at the prompting and planning of his mother, Rebecca, deceived Isaac, his father, into giving him the blessing, which traditionally would go to the firstborn son, his twin brother Esau. It's been several weeks, but I, I hope you remember what we saw. But after the sermon, several questions came up, and then let me deal with them somewhat extensively. It seemed to some that I approved of the deception of Jacob deceiving his father. I mentioned other cases in the Old Testament in which people deceived when they lied and it was approved of. So you have Rahab, uh, who is mentioned in Hebrews 11, the chapter of faith. You have Ehud, who lied and then assassinated the political leader of the Canaanites. You have Jael, who killed, I mean, she welcomed and showed hospitality to Sisera, the general of Jabin. And then as he fell asleep, she drove a tent peg through his head, and she is referred to as blessed. Um, in each of these incidents, uh, it was written within the context of conflict or of a battle, of war. The Israelites are, have come into the promised land and the people in Jericho are worried. That's the story of Rahab. And with Ehud, it was uh, a foreign power that had taken over the Israelites. And with Jael, it was the case of Jabin. I would argue on some level this is also the case here with Esau and Jacob. The Lord had revealed to Rebekah while she was pregnant. It was her only pregnancy, and she couldn't quite figure out what was going on. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And conflict is somewhat hinted at that these two are not going to get along. And what we saw is that God's reason for reversing the normal scheme of things and relationships the firstborn son is the one who is supposed to get the blessing. The firstborn is, in fact, to be first over all his siblings. And yet God chose Jacob rather than Esau. And the reason that he did was because of his grace. It's one of the reasons why we sang Amazing Grace again today. We sang it, or you sang it while I was on here several weeks ago. Because it is grace that guides this entire story. Isaac, on the other hand, his insistence on giving it to Esau was in fact a violation of God's purpose. God had revealed that he had graciously chosen Jacob. It had to be grace because it belonged to Esau. But God chose Esau 
out of his grace. But Isaac didn't like that idea, and so he was determined to give it to Esau. And it reminded me of two incidents uh, in the life of Moses that I think might give us some insight uh, into what happens here. In Exodus chapter 17, after leaving Egypt and before they get to Sinai, we read the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So they've just come out of Egypt, out of slavery, miraculously delivered the ten plagues and then going through the Red Sea. Uh, everything is provided for them, but they run out of water. And so they complain, and God tells Moses, see this rock over there and hit the rock with your staff, and water will come out. And that's exactly what happened. Well, 40 years later, we have sort of a deja vu all over again. It happens once again. Uh, This is found in Numbers chapter 20. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell down, fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he showed himself holy among them. When you read this passage, you might say, what's the big deal? It seems that God overreacted. 
You know, he told Moses, speak to the rock. Moses hid it instead. And because of that, Moses would not be allowed to enter the promised land. That seems awfully harsh, just because he disobeyed God in this one thing. But yeah, that's why the Lord did not let him into the promised land, because he violated the symbolism that was intended. See, when the Lord told him in Exodus 17 to strike the rock, that was symbolic of the sacrifice of Christ, that he would be struck, he would be smitten, and living water would come from him. Our salvation would come from him. The Bible says repeatedly, particularly in the book of Psalms, that Christ is our rock. Hebrews tells us that Christ died once for all, and no further sacrifice for sins is required. So God told Moses the second time, not not hit the rock, speak to the rock. If you wish, Christ has already been sacrificed. It is no longer necessary for him to be sacrificed again. But Moses messed up the whole symbolism, the whole picture. Instead, if you wish, symbolically, he crucified Christ again. He was told to speak. Those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Speak, and the water, living water, would come out. But Moses it's like, I've, I've, I've done this before. I, I seem to remember, yeah, last time I hit the rock and water came out, and I will do it again. And no doubt he was angry with the Israelites for their stubbornness. He calls them rebels. But he violated what God had intended. Had God allowed the mistake, if you wish, what Moses did to go unchallenged, we would be confused. We would think that perhaps the sacrifice of Christ once for all would not be enough. But Hebrews is very clear. There's this once for allness, if you wish, that Christ died once. Hebrews 7.27, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, then he said, here I am, have come to do your will. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. Once for all, Christ was sacrificed. And since that time, it has not been necessary for him to be sacrificed again. Instead, we call on the name of the Lord. So it is kind of a big deal that Moses disobeyed God when God said, just speak to the rock. As I said in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And to the Samaritan woman, In John chapter 4, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Call on the name of the Lord. You're like, okay, I thought we were talking about Jacob and Isaac. What is the point here? Well, in the same way 
that Isaac was trying to destroy the symbolism of grace. Because normally, yeah, Esau would be the firstborn. He's the one who gets the blessing. But God graciously chooses not the firstborn, but the second, his twin brother Jacob, to receive the blessing. As Paul writes, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. It's grace. It's pure grace. It's not by any kind of works that we do. So so it's okay. It was okay for Jacob and Rebekah to deceive Isaac. No, it was not. It was not. As the Lord said to Moses, one could almost hear the words being spoken to Rebekah and Jacob, because you did not trust me enough to honor me. They should have trusted the word of the Lord. Instead, they schemed, they conspired to deceive Isaac to gain what God had in grace promised them. And like Isaac, they violated the picture of grace. Isaac went against the notion of grace. I'll do it my way. This is the way we do things. They decided to add to God's grace. Yes, God has made this promise, but he needs our help. And so we're going to deceive the old man so that he will give the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. Their actions represented grace plus works. God's grace was not enough, could not honor him. It's really intriguing, and I mentioned this before. What if, in fact, they had not deceived Isaac? Would the blessing have gone to Esau? No, no. God promised that it would go to Jacob. But they did not trust him enough to honor him. In the same way, Moses should have just spoken to the rock, but instead he decided he would hit it. God needs our help, it would seem. That's what they're saying, to accomplish his purposes. So the deception by Jacob was wrong. I want to be clear about that. It was wrong. Another question that came up, and this is more my question than one that someone else asked, and that is, could not Isaac have said that the blessing was invalid because it was based on deception? See, in our society and in our legal system, misrepresentation is a basis for rendering a contract invalid. Ask Ruth. She works for an attorney. She knows. If somebody misrepresents themselves, the contract's invalid. Okay? But that's not what we find in Scripture. Time and time again, people deceive one another, and yet the contract is still binding. There's no question that Jacob misrepresented himself, and not in a casual way. Um, He wore his brother's clothes so he would smell like him. He wore goatskins to feel like his brother. More than once when his dad asked, are you Esau? He said, yes, I am. And he invoked God's name in the process. It's one thing to see, but when you say, you know, so help me God, and you're lying, that's, that's not right. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he said. Yeah. But what we find in scriptures, I've said, is that agreements done in bad faith 
are still considered valid and binding. This will come up again with Jacob later on in the case of Leah and Rachel. So why is it in the Bible that when somebody misrepresents themselves and you enter into an agreement, the agreement is still considered binding? An easy answer for me is I don't know. Um, but I've thought about this for a number of years. It's something that has sort of bothered me. And the only answer I can propose to you is this. And we can talk about this afterwards. When an agreement, when a contract is entered into by two parties, there are not only two parties involved. God is involved as well in all agreements. We don't think that way. Um, I think the closest we come to it is maybe uh, at a wedding whom God has put together, let no man you know, put asunder, um, that it is done, you know, he is one of the, the witnesses of the marriage. But I would say that in every agreement, God is in fact the third party. And in his time, he will act in judgment. It may not be when we want him to, but he knows precisely if somebody has lied to us, if somebody has deceived us, God knows that, and he will judge that deception. Let's come to Genesis 27. Um, Esau's not happy. His brother has cheated him as he sees it, uh, and he's he wants to kill him. Look at verse number 41 of chapter 27. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Um, Rebecca hears about this. Look at 42. When Rebecca was told what her older son Esau had said, she, said, she sent for her younger son, Jacob, and said to him, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Uh, so we're told that Esau said this to himself, but he must have said it out pretty loud that other people heard it. Rebecca heard about it. Um, and so now she comes up with a scheme, a plan. Verse 43, now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban and Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word to you for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Verse 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So many mistakes made here. First of all, Esau's like, yeah, my dad's going to die pretty soon. And when, after he dies, then I'll kill Jacob. Isaac lived another 43 years. Okay, so that didn't happen. And Rebecca says, go to my brother Laban, and when, you know, when Esau cools off, I'll call you back. Uh, Rebecca never sees Jacob again. She dies before he comes back. Okay. But she does speak to her husband about this. And we saw this uh, in chapter 26, verse 34. 
When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Biri the Hittite, and also Basimath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. These are the women who make life miserable for Rebekah. She's disgusted with these marriages. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So she says, listen, we've got to send Jacob away. We've got to find him a good wife, like your dad did, finding me. Abraham sent his servant and found Rebekah. We need to send him away. I don't think she says to Isaac, or to, yeah, to Isaac, uh, yeah, Esau wants to kill Jacob, so we need to get him out of town. It's more, I don't want him to marry a local woman. So they, in fact, do send him away. Now chapter 28, the first five verses. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's brother Bethuel, and take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. One could argue that the central point is don't marry a Canaanite woman. And it would be a mixed marriage, but not in terms of ethnicity or race, but in terms of belief. That if he married a Hittite woman, he would be marrying a pagan woman. And this would jeopardize the faith of God's people. God's people worship the God of Abraham and of Isaac, and he does not want Jacob to marry someone who worships false gods. But you'll notice that the blessing is given again, and this has one of the this is one of the things that has troubled me. First of all, how does Jacob have the nerve to go to his father and say, "I'm leaving"? I mean, I think I would just sort of slink out of town. And no, and then why does Isaac give him a blessing? And in fact, what we find here in chapter 28 is closer to what God said to Abraham than the blessing that Isaac gave him in chapter 27. I don't think blessing is what I would have on my mind if the son who had deceived me, taking advantage of my poor eyesight, I don't think that I would in fact want to give him a blessing. But he does. And as I said, it's more in line with what we hear God saying to Abraham. The name El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty, is invoked. This is something, it's been 11 chapters. This is chapter 17 when we first hear this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. So we have the promise given to Abraham and then confirmed to Isaac. Isaac now confirms it to Jacob. And I think what has happened is that Isaac has come to recognize that he was wrong. That in fact the blessing should have gone to Jacob in grace. 
That's what God had told Rebecca when she was pregnant. I think Isaac has come to see that in fact he was wrong and even though his son deceived him to make things right, um, yeah, he's willing now to give the full blessing to his son, Jacob. And so he sends him away to the house of Laban who will feature prominently in the chapters that follow. How do the sons react? Look, if you would, at verses 6 through 10. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth, and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. I know how much this bothers my father, so I'm going to do it again. He might have rationalized and said, well, if in fact she's the daughter of Ishmael, then um, she's not really a Canaanite woman. So now I have a non-Canaanite wife. He chose to do that which would displease his father. Jacob, on the other hand, obeyed his father and mother. He was told what to do, and he did what they told him. And he set out for Haran, uh, to Paddan Aram, which is the plain of Aram, and there to find Laban, his mother's brother. Now we come to perhaps one of the most familiar stories in the life of Jacob, the story of Jacob's ladder. Look, if you would, at verses 10 through 22. So Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Okay, this is the context of about what's about to happen. He leaves Beersheba, which is in southern Israel, the southern part near the Negev, and now he is traveling north to go up to Mesopotamia uh, to Laban's house. He stops for the night because the sun has gone down, and he uses a stone for a pillow, and he, li- he lays down to sleep. Verse 12, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So what happens? Jacob has a dream, which has two components, the visual and the verbal, if you wish, the auditory. It's interesting, most people focus on the visual. There are paintings that have been done of this, of this ladder that reaches up to heaven. Angels are coming up and down, and the Lord is at the top of the ladder. Um, The visual is important, but I think of secondary importance to what God tells uh, Jacob. 
Um, by the way, I would suggest to you that many people can tell you about the latter, but they don't really know what God said when he spoke to Jacob, which is unfortunate. So, this is the story. Jacob is asleep. Thus, it is God who takes the initiative. I found a wonderful uh, statement from George MacDonald, a 19th century Scottish author, poet, and pastor. And he wrote, Sleep is God's contrivance for giving the help he cannot get into us when we are awake. Yeah. The Lord appears to him while he is asleep. God takes the initiative. Jacob does not go to God. God comes to him. The stairway between heaven and earth symbolizes the reality of the connection between heaven and earth. Because some might imagine that God is in heaven and that's so far away and it has really little or nothing to do with us. And here we are on earth as poor, feeble human beings and there is no connection. And the ladder symbolizes, the stairway symbolizes that there is in fact a very dynamic uh, connection between what God is doing above and what God is doing in earth. The earth is not left to its own resources and heaven is not a remote self-contained realm. It is worth noting that before the story of Abraham, the calling of Abraham, do you remember what comes before that? It's the Tower of Babel, in which the people try to build a tower to reach up to the heavens. No, it is God who in grace reaches down. It is not us trying to reach up, it is God reaching down. In Jacob's case, he's on the run. And perhaps imagining that he is by himself, he's alone, He's just trying to survive. Um, The idea that the divine was somehow involved in all of this, I think perhaps never occurred to him. And the dream tells him otherwise. God is very intimately involved in Jacob's life as he is in our lives. The angels who are ascending and descending are messengers who do his bidding, but they are not the ones who speak in this dream. It is God who speaks, not the angels. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. There are two parts to what the Lord says uh, to him. The first is pretty much what God had promised to Abraham and Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring almost word for word toward the end of what God had said to Abram years before. But the second part is unique to Jacob. It's not just like sort of a generic blessing. Yeah, that's what I said to Abraham and Isaac, and I'll include you. Now it's very, very specific in verse 15. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Three parts of this. First of all, there is the presence. I am with you. Secondly, there is the promise of action. I will keep you. And thirdly, there is a promise of homecoming. I will bring you back to this land. In three words, accompaniment. God would accompany him. Secondly, protection. And thirdly, homecoming. It's a wonderful display of God's grace. Jacob was not a pilgrim. He was not a returning prodigal. And yet God came to meet him. 
He met him that night in his dream, angels and all, okay? Taking Jacob completely by surprise. Stop and think, if you were God and you decided to appear to Jacob in a dream at this point in his life, don't you think some scolding might be in order? It's like, hey, you liar, you deceiver of your father. But there is no word of reproach and there are no demands made. It is only a stream of assurances. I will be with you. I will protect you. I will bring you back. This is grace. The picture of grace had been destroyed by Isaac and by Rebekah and Jacob. Isaac was insistent, I will give the blessing to Esau. And Rebekah and Jacob were, we will deceive in order to get what God had promised in grace. So that's, they totally messed up the whole grace picture there. So now God gives us another picture of grace. The connection between heaven and earth and God in grace, grace reaching down. How would you respond? How does Jacob respond? Look, if you would, at verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord was in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on the journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all you, that you give me, I will give you a tenth. It's interesting. We're, we're told where the place is, but it's near a city, but he's out there by himself. Otherwise, I think he might have gone into the city uh, for safety. It's a nameless place between places. It's about 50 miles away, but it has become a decisive place. The Lord was in this place, and I was not aware of it. Nearby is a city called Luz, but in time, another city will emerge, and it is called Bethel. That is the house of God. Jacob responds, and that's important. It is a response. God starts the whole thing with the dream. That's the way grace works. God reaches down, and then Jacob responds. First of all, with reverent fear. He was afraid. Surely the Lord is in this place. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. Um, some have argued that, in fact, Jacob's view of God was very narrow, that he thought God was back with Isaac in Beersheba, and he had left home, so he's on his own. He's got to make it to his uncle's place, but God is back there with Isaac. And now he sees, in fact, that God is everywhere. There is a connection between God's presence and the earth, heaven and earth. So the place has real significance for him. God is in this place. Secondly, there is an act of worship. He takes a stone, the stone that he had used as a pillow, and sets it up as a pillar and pours oil on it as an act of worship. Um, 
and he calls the place Bethel, the house of God. Um, he may not have known this, but his grandfather Abraham had come to this place as well when he first came to Canaan, first to Shechem and then between Bethel and Ai. But there's no plaque to mark this place. You know, this is where Abraham met with the Lord, or this is where Jacob poured out oil to life. There's no such thing. But it does, in fact, become an important place. Um, it shows up again in Jacob's life, which the Lord willing we will see in the weeks to come. The Lord appears to him and says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. The house of God, but tragically, as can so often be the case, that which starts out right goes terribly wrong. When the 10 tribes split off from the two southern tribes, Jeroboam was their king and he's like, you know, this is not a good thing. Jerusalem is in the south and the people of Israel, the 10 tribes, when they go to Jerusalem to sacrifice, they're going to get really nostalgic and sentimental. It's like, why did we split off? Why did we break up? We should, we should get back together again. So instead he said, I will, he set up two golden calves, amazingly enough, one to the north in Dan and the other one in Bethel, the place known as the house of God. He said, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. And listen to these words from Jeroboam. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. <laughs> Sound familiar? So Aaron had said, the golden calf. So what we find is reverence, we find worship, and then we find a commitment in the form of vows. If the Lord will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, then I will return safe to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. He made a vow which some take to be a bargain. And I, I have different thoughts on this. It, it seems as though it is an act of thanksgiving. But God has promised in grace, I will be with you. I will protect you. I will bring you back. And what does Jacob say? If you do this, if you do the second, if you do the third thing, then you'll be my God. Okay? And I will give you a tenth of all that I have. Um, I don't know that he gets the grace thing yet. But God has graciously promised him these things. And Jacob's like, okay, I, I, I sort of need to make a promise so that God will keep up what he has said he would do. So we hear if. The vow, by the way, matches the promise that were made. Accompaniment, if God will be with me, protection, and you will watch over me on the journey I'm taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, and then the homecoming, that I safely, that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. That is to say, Jacob binds himself to the Lord as his God. We really don't know what he thought about God up to this point. But this incident does, in fact, bring him into 
a relationship with God. The tangible expression of that relationship is of all that I have, I will give you a tenth. How this was done, we are not told. Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. Uh, There's no Melchizedek around. There are no temples. There are no priests. Uh, We don't know how this worked out, but he made the vow nonetheless. Just a side note, it has been suggested that when you read the 23rd Psalm, it is a reflection of the vows that the vow that Jacob made and the promises that God made. If God will watch over me on this journey I am taking, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he restores my soul, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. If God will be with me, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And will give me food to eat and clothes to wear. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So that I return to my father's house in safety. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Then the Lord will be my God. And for this we go back to the first verse of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall want, or I shall not be in want. But there was still the if, there was still the if. So, what do we take away from this chapter? The dream illustrates God's grace in calling Jacob. And we hear very similar language that is somewhat confusing in the New Testament, because we ignore the Old Testament, sadly, many do. But I don't know if you remember the story of the calling of Nathanael. This is in John chapter 1. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. In grace, Jesus calls him to be his disciple. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about the one the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You, and there it is plural. He's talking to the disciples he has called. Shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. It's the same picture, the connection, heaven and earth, the angels ascending and descending. The act of grace is seen in God reaching down to his people. As I said earlier, God takes the initiative. He reveals himself to Jacob in a way that lets Jacob know, and it lets us know, that God is involved in what is happening in his life 
and in our lives. He makes promises to be with him, to protect him, and to bring him home. He does this to a man who frankly does not deserve it, who deceived his father in order to get what God had promised him freely. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking Jacob is not the best candidate for the blessing. Certainly not the best candidate for all these promises that God has made. Yet, it is to this man that God chooses to be gracious. He'd already been gracious in choosing the younger over the older. But Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob marred that symbol. They destroyed the picture. It's as though God had painted a painting of grace. I'm choosing Jacob, even though he's younger. And Isaac's like, no, it's going to be Esau. Mess up the painting. And Rebekah and Jacob, no, we're going to have to deceive. God needs our help. And the painting, the picture of grace has been marred. But God is a God of grace. And he now paints a new picture. It is that of the stairway to heaven. Because Jacob failed to appreciate God's grace in getting the blessing, God now gives him a new picture of that grace in a rather dramatic way and with promises. Jacob makes a vow, and it matches the promises. But as we will see the Lord willing in the weeks to come, he continued to act as though God's grace was not enough. That in fact, he would have to take matters into his own hands. He would have to live by his own wits. God continues to be gracious to him, speaking to him from time to time. But 20 years after Bethel, an event happens that hopefully cements in Jacob's mind that God, in fact, is the one who takes the initiative and God is the one who is gracious. Jacob doesn't have to lie and cheat and deceive in order to get what God has promised him. In chapter 32, Jacob has come home. God has kept his promise. There's a problem. Esau is coming to meet him. The bunch of men, I think 400 men. Jacob is scared. He divides his family. He has 12, or at that point, 11 sons. Six with two of his wives, five with two of the others. He splits them up, and he is left alone. So Jacob was left alone, we read. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. We will see when we get to that part of Genesis that the one who wrestled him was the Lord. The Lord wrestled him. The Lord initiated the contact. You know, if somebody hits you, they pop you really good, you can run or you can fight. Um, If somebody makes threats, you can run. But if somebody wrestles you, you're sort of committed. I mean, you're all tangled up. You have to continue the wrestling, if you wish. And so God seeks to get Jacob's attention. I'm the God who called you. I'm the God who has been gracious to you all these years. You don't need to lie. You don't need to deceive. You don't need to scheme. You need to trust me. You don't need to hit the rock again, Moses. You need to honor me. You need to trust me. 
surely there's something for us to learn from all this. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that we are far more like Isaac, Rebecca, and Jacob than we care to admit. Far too often we go our own way. We think we know what is best. We go contrary to your grace. And other times we accept your grace, but we think that it's sort of lacking some things, and so you, you need us to help, help you bring things to fruition. Forgive us. Help us to realize that the only way anything happens is by your grace. We are not deserving of anything. And yet you have been so gracious and continue to be gracious to us every day. May we honor you by trusting you. May we recognize that you are the God of all grace. The God of all love. May we take these things to heart and think on them in the days to come. As we walk through the world in the coming week, may we recognize that you're right there with us. And you always have been. Thank you for bringing us together today. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.